new moon just a few hours prior to the spring equinox. I, I, I confused myself explaining that a couple, I think a couple of weeks ago when it came up. Uh, the series of events that have to occur in the heavens for a new year, a new month, and a new first day of the month are the equinox, which is a change of season, as Scripture indicates, and then the first new moon after that, in order, and then the first sundown following that. So this year we had a new moon which occurred just a few hours, actually, before the spring equinox. Uh, Therefore, we had to wait for the equinox, and then the next new moon, which is... uh, roughly 29 days later, uh, before we can declare the first month. So what that does is it makes this a leap year. This is the beginning of the 13th month of the year, and uh, that automatically happens uh, without us having to figure it or uh, interpolate it uh, artificially as it itself. This year it did it. So that's why we have the Passover this year as late as it possibly can be, uh, ever. Uh, It can be uh, roughly a month earlier, but it can, this is as late as it can get by virtue of the fact that the new moon came just before the equinox. So equinox is first signal, and the next new moon then is the second signal that you can have a new year. And it's about a month away. So that, uh, well, not, yeah, about a month away. And then you got 14 days till Passover, so that puts it on the evening of May 1st. Let's get back to Ecclesiastes right away today. I, I'm going to try to finish this up and move on to some other things. So I'll try to get through these four chapters. I don't want to... Uh, minimize them, nor give them due course and consideration and expounding, but uh, we can move along in doing that anyway. Uh, we, in, in one sense, it's more of the same. Uh, he felt he needed to include it all in order to get his point truly across, and God saw fit to put that in the book. So it's just as important in the last four verses or chapters as it is in the first four. Uh, a reiteration of what he's been saying and putting it in different ways. And then he begins to draw God into the picture a little bit more because this could be a very discouraging book and is to some people if we only consider the here and now or the implications of our physical life with nothing beyond that. So whatever is done here in 70 or 70 plus or minus years is utterly futile and vain unless there is something more. He does mention God in the 17th verse, the last one of chapter 8, and how that God uh, does what he does and no man can question or even sometimes understand what God is doing. But... He continues then in chapter 9, For all this I considered in my heart, even to to declare all this. So he's thought these things over. He's meditated on them. He's looked at the lives of himself as well as the life of himself as well as that of others to consider uh, 
uh, the broad spectrum of human experience and the sameness of it and what happens to everyone. So I considered it, thought about it, meditated on it, to declare this, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. God is ultimately the judge of all. We can try to judge one another, we can assess one another, we can pigeonhole one another, we can compare ourselves among ourselves, and all of that means nothing whatsoever. God is the one who makes the judgments. It's all in the hand of God. And he says, no man knows either love or hatred by all that is before them. We individually learn for ourselves. Other people can try to advise us as we're growing up, our grandparents, our parents, uh, other mentors. But when it's all said and done, we learn what we learn pretty much on our own. We are born as a new child, and we have to learn lessons of life and the vagaries of it and the good and the bad as we go through it. You, you can't lean on someone else in that sense. If you're smart, <laughs> you'll listen when they talk, but most of us don't listen very well, and we have to learn love or hatred on our own. All things come alike to all. There is one event to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the clean, and to the unclean, to him that sacrifices, and to him that sacrifices not. As is the good, so is the sinner, and he that swears, as he that feared an oath. So, it doesn't matter whether you've been good or bad, you're going to die. It is appointed to all men once to die. So, that's where we're headed from the first breath we breathe is toward physical death. It is the ultimate outcome of every life. So, we need to consider that. It doesn't matter how smart you are, how wealthy you are, how whatever it is you are, you're going to die anyway. There's no getting around it. Verse 3, there's an evil among all things that are done under the sun, that there is one event to all. Uh, Paul calls death uh, an enemy. He says we'll receive victory over death in the resurrection in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. So death is an enemy, isn't it? Uh, and yet it's an enemy that is going to claim us all on a physical level. But there is a way to overcome that death and be resurrected to be changed and then to live forever. So, we need to look beyond what is here. That's really the whole point of this whole book, is look beyond what there is. Also, the heart of the sons of men is full of evil, and madness is in their heart while they live, and after that they go to the dead. Same thing Jeremiah 17.9 says, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. So he's saying here, that we, by nature, are full of evil. That's just what we are. Uh, there are people who would say that's not true, but there's too much testimony uh, in the Bible, and there's too much living testimony among people that the thoughts of people 
tend toward sin continually. God wiped us out once, and he's about to wipe out most of mankind again, or let Satan do most of the dirty work, but that is the ultimate thing that is going to happen. Verse 4, For him that is joined to all the living, there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. You might think you're really something, but if after you're dead, you don't amount to much. A dead lion does nothing. It's just gone. So even if you're, by comparison, a dog instead of a lion, uh, there's still hope, because there is life. For the living know that they shall die. But the dead know not anything, neither have they any more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. We pretty quickly get wiped away from memory, and here is a good proof scripture on uh, the state of the dead. makes it very clear. The dead know nothing. They have no thoughts, no consciousness. They're not in heaven or hell or purgatory or any place else. They're just in the grave uh, awaiting a resurrection and have no consciousness whatsoever. They're not watching you. They're not on a cloud somewhere. They are dead. Ecclesiastes 9.5 we ought to have memorized because some people think that there is a, a consciousness after death, but that is not so. How can people say people go to heaven when they die, when Paul made it so very clear in Acts that no man has ascended into heaven except he which came down, not even David. So, David is going to be in the kingdom of God ruling all Israel, but he's not there now. He hasn't gone to heaven, and besides that, the earth is the reward of the saved, Revelation 5.10, not flitting about heaven forever. So, a lot of information is contained in verse 5. But not only do they die, verse 6, also their love and their hate and their envy is now perished. Good attitudes, bad attitudes, that's the finality of them. That's, that's where they end. Whether you've been in a good attitude or if you've been full of hate, whether you've been full of envy or whatever, that goes away. If you don't overcome it yourself, uh, it'll go away when you die. It won't be there anymore. Neither have they any more portion forever in anything that is done under the sun. It's just simply final from a purely human standpoint. So he says in verse 7, as a result of those statements, Go your way. Eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God now accepts your works. So, he says, don't sit and feel self-pity that you're going to die, that everything, you know, the lights will go out, and there'll be nothing but darkness, and no consciousness whatsoever in death. So he says, go ahead and enjoy the time that you have on the earth. God has made a lot of wonderful things. He's made things to eat that taste good, that keep your body going. He's made wine uh, and alcohol to give you a, a merry heart. 
to cheer you up to some degree, to relax you. Those are things that are good used properly. Wrong food, too much food, uh, too much alcohol is not good for any of us. Uh, so everything in moderation, but enjoy what has been put here for us. For God now accepts your works. In other words, while we're here on this earth, God is accepting what we offer Him, what we do. I think He's certainly implying good works here, not evil works. God does not accept those, but He does accept uh, that which is good, and He ponders that and wants to keep that. I think that is proven by the context in verse 8. Let your garments be always white. So, while you're here, enjoy the physical earth that God has provided, because it is a beautiful place to live. Even yet, after all of man's pollution, it's still a beautiful place to be. And even with the pollution of everything we eat, drink, and breathe, uh, still it's a pleasant place to be. So, enjoy that, but always be wearing white garments. In other words, living a life of righteousness. That is acceptable to God, and He will accept those works. In other words, this is a, an encouragement to do good. Because while you're here enjoying the span of life that you have, God will accept your righteous acts, your righteous living, and look forward to giving you eternal life in his kingdom if he at all can. That's what he wants for you. He's not there trying to get you. He's there trying to help you be in his kingdom. That's what he wants for every last one of us, is for us to be there. So, let your garments be white. Don't spoil them and dirty them with sin. And let your head lack no ointment. So, you go ahead, uh, you, you shave, you put on, uh, after shave, you wash your hair, you brush your teeth and, you know, take a bath and wear clothes. You go through life, you do these things, and you enjoy being a human being, but realize it ends in futility and death. So, even though you enjoy what God has made... Look forward to something greater. Verse 9, Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of the life of your vanity, which he has given you under the sun all the days of your vanity, for that is your portion in this life and in your labor which you take under the sun. So he says you eat and you drink, you live righteously and enjoy your mate. Now here was a man who had lots of mates, and it turned out that they weren't really mates at all. Uh, he had been profligate and had far more than one. <coughs> and that is a recipe for disaster. God did not design mankind to have more than one wife. That's all that we should have. And when he tried something different, it did not work out too well. And even though God did not censure it from the standpoint of not allowing it in the Old Testament. He did because of the hardness of their hearts. But all you have to do is look at the fruits of that. And the women uh, 
trying to put their own child ahead of the, the other wives' children, the jealousies and the envy and all that went with that, and then the infighting and attitudes and envying and so on that went on between the wives and handmaids or whatever the situation was. And the fruit of that was not good. And then Christ stopped it in the New Testament and said, don't go there. Now, some already, apparently as they were converted, already had more than one wife, as the society had allowed it. And he did not stop that, and we've had that in the end time as well, back in Worldwide Church of God. Some people, some cultures allowed more than one wife, and uh, we did not make them divorce all but the favorite, but don't get any more. It was the advice that was given from Pasadena, and I think that was wise advice. I had one evangelist say, well, that's sin, you just got to get rid of them. So here you got, let's say you got four wives, and... Twelve kids. So you pick your favorite wife and her three kids and you keep them and turn the others out on the street to fend for themselves? I don't think so. I mean, it's something that had already been done. And uh, you can't undo, in that sense, the past. You can only change tomorrow, today and tomorrow. So it would have been uh, unmerciful and unkind especially to the women and the children, to do it that way. So just don't do any more. And nobody could be ordained as an elder if they had more than one wife. Uh, that was made very clear by Paul and Timothy, I think it was. So even Solomon here, which I think was toward the end of his life, uh, says you ought to just enjoy your one wife and live joyfully with her. Uh, going beyond that, is going to create less than joy in the long run. Verse 10, Whatsoever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave where you go. If you're going to be here, you might as well live. You might as well be enthusiastic about whatever you're doing. If it's worth doing, it's worth doing with gusto, with enthusiasm. Whether it's farming or making shoes or whatever it is that your hand has found to do, do it heartily. And that is one of the things about the church and our society and culture today that God deplores, is that we are lackadaisical and half-hearted in both the way we live, the way we study, the way we pray, the way we repent, the way we forgive, the way we live our lives. And we do not have the attitude of God. And life isn't much fun if everything you do, you just sort of halfway, half-heartedly go about it, is it? Is it more fun if you're just playing a table game? Is it more fun if people get excited and interested in what they're doing, or whether they just sit there and flip out a card and never strike a smile. Oh, I'm here. I'll play. But isn't it more fun if everybody gets into it? Sports are the same way. Well, I don't think I'll swing too hard at that ball. (laughs) This ain't much fun. I don't think I'll run down the base path as fast as I can. It's just too much trouble. 
whatever we're doing, we need to have enthusiasm for it. Otherwise, there's not much point in doing it, is there? You're not going to get the reward from it. And worshiping God is in the same vein. He wants us to worship Him with all our heart and to follow His ways with all our heart and to have His attitudes, which is very difficult for us to do. Verse 11, I returned and saw unto the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill, but time and chance happens to them all. Just because you're smart and bright and work hard doesn't mean everything is going to work out good for you. And sometimes the lazy and slovenly just kind of trip and fall into uh, what we might consider blessings or good things. Uh, you just never know. Time and chance is there, and it happens to everybody. Now, I tend to believe that time and chance does not happen in that same way to you and me. Since God saw fit, for whatever reasons he had, to call you and to call me, he has a purpose for us, a very important purpose. Our chance at salvation is now. It's not later, it's now. Now consider that in the millennium, that is a time of salvation, a time of calling, a time of understanding for everyone that's alive. Same with the great white throne judgment. What will happen then? There will be blessings, there will be a better place to live, uh, sin will not be allowed. If you determine that you want to do something wrong, a voice will say, no, this is the way, walk in it. Sometimes we get balanced in a wrong direction. On one hand, we can say that Jesus or Christ, I say Jesus because that's the term that the Protestants and others use, is full of love and mercy and kindness and it doesn't matter. Whatever you do, God is there, and you're saved, and so on. Now, God is full of love, and kindness, and patience, and mercy. Those are fruits of His Spirit. But you need to consider all the aspects of God's and Christ's personality. When Christ returns to this earth, He is not going to rule in a wishy-washy way. It says very clearly, he will rule with a rod of iron. Now, that's a pretty strong rod. It doesn't bend. He will not allow sin to occur. A rod of iron. At the same time, he's merciful and gentle. And we get that confused sometimes. We read Ezekiel 34, and it says that the ministry in this day and age has been overbearing and pushed too hard. And in, there were many, many cases of that where people were, uh, the ministers would go to their house and they would criticize everything in the house and do all that stuff all the time. And it was overlording and overbearing. And then it says, by contrast, Christ will gently lead 
like holding a lamb. Well, he will gently lead, yes, but at the same time, he will rule with a rod of iron. So we have to determine which is which, depending on the circumstance, right? Was it James that said, some uh, jerk out of the fire, others you uh, deal with with compassion, gently leading them out. So there's a time to use the rod, and there's a time to use compassion. And wisdom is understanding when what is needed. But don't get overbalanced one direction or another, saying, well, Christ wouldn't react that way. Yes, he might. It just depends on the circumstance entirely. Now, overall, he's merciful and gentle and kind. But when the rod is needed, God is not afraid to use it. In fact, he tells us in Hebrews 12, he chastens every son whom he loves. So he gets out the rod with us, too. Even though most of the time he's patient and gentle, he's not afraid to use chastening when it is needed. So let's understand the balance of God's personality and that he will do for us what we need done the most. So I don't think time and chance happens to us in the same way that it does the world because this is our time of salvation. This is our opportunity and therefore, he watches over our lives in a different way than he does the world. First Corinthians 7, Paul even talks about how the, um, the child is protected or comes under the umbrella of the believing, obedient parent. Whereas, if it's only one called, in other words, because the wife or the husband is the only one in that pair that are called, the children will still receive God's uh, care in spite of the fact that one in the family, one parent is not converted. So the children benefit from the converted parent. So God keeps an eye on us in a way that he doesn't the rest of the world. They're concluded unbelief. They are deceived. But we are not. And therefore... God will do with us what we need to get us into his kingdom. So it isn't time and chance. When he chastens us, he chastens us. When he blesses us, he blesses us. But he looks over us at all times. In fact, Paul said, cast all your care on him, for he cares for you. It may not seem like it all the time. Sometimes it seems like he's ignoring us. Sometimes it seems like he's not there or doesn't care. Oh, no, that's not true. Most of that comes from us not caring enough about Him and seeking Him and serving Him. And He is not real to a lot of people because they don't take hold of Him and make it real. But time and chance is not what occurs with you and me. We are under God's ever-watchful care, because this is our time for salvation. Verse 12, for man also knows not his time. You don't know when you're going to die. 
As the fishes that are taken in an evil net, and as the birds that are caught in the snare, so are the sons of men snared in an evil time when it falls suddenly upon them. You can die in a plethora of different ways, <clears throat> and you don't know how or when, whether it be very quickly in an accident or fairly quickly with disease or uh, whatever comes, you just don't know. A fish is swimming along, a bird flying, and they're snared, and it's over. We need to be cognizant of that, because there are people in God's church who do die tragic deaths at times. And then we wonder, how and why? Well, maybe they had passed tests, maybe they were qualified, and God said, okay, let that one go. That wasn't time and chance. He passed on it. He allowed it. There are other times we can be in some pretty horrific situations and not die. So, if we die, you and me, God has passed on it. He's allowed it. And uh, I don't think that he is going to let us die prematurely if we're truly converted without himself being... Uh, or having decided that we will be in his kingdom. I don't think he's going to allow that with us. This wisdom have I seen also under the sun, and it seems great to me. There was a little city, and few men within it, and there was came a great king against it, and besieged it, and built great bulwarks against it. Now there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city, yet no man remembered that same poor man. Then said I, Wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. Who's he? He's just that junk dealer down on the corner. What would he know? So, a man could not be in a high station in life, as men would see it, but if he has common sense and wisdom, uh, he might figure out something to defeat a huge army. And he has more wisdom than all of the men who were in the city. The words of wise men are heard in quiet more than the cry of him that rules among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. He continues that thought in chapter 10. Dead flies cause the ointment of the apothecary to send forth a stinking savor. Apothecary here means a mix or a compound, and a very similar Hebrew word, once removed, uh, speaks of spices. So, in other words, you can mix up a really nice-smelling concoction for uh, the air or for the body or whatever, and if you let flies in it and they rot, uh, it's going to cause it to smell. So does a little folly him that is in reputation for wisdom and honor. A man can seem to be wise and be honorable, and all it takes usually is one thing, one mistake, one error, and uh, all of that goes away in the minds of people. It's like... Uh, you can shoot a bullet, and all you have to do is give them a little bit of ammunition, and not only will they shoot it, but they'll reload it and shoot it again, and reload it and shoot it again. 
All they need is one little excuse, and they will keep pounding that to death forevermore. So it doesn't take much, just a little folly, and mankind will use it over and over and over again to try to destroy. And that is satanic, but that's the way human beings are. A wise man's heart is at his right hand, but a fool's heart at his left. Uh, the analogy being that you're, most people are right-handed, so your right hand is where most of your attention goes, right? I'm left-handed, so more of my attention goes to my left hand. I'm more aware of it because it does more things for me. But if you're right-handed, your right hand does more things for you than your left. So your heart, your focus, your mind is on your right hand because it's your primary one. So he says your heart should be at your right hand. Your, your heart, your emotions, your mind, your attitude should be very, very important to you. And if you're letting it deteriorate for whatever reason, then that should be a deep, deep concern for you. Because once you allow negativity and resentment and some of those negative uh, attitudes become part of your thinking, they will destroy you. They won't destroy the object of your wrath. They will destroy you. So he says, and another, there's another place, and I can't think where it is, where it says, guard your heart. Guard it carefully. Because once you let it start drifting, uh, you can get yourself in trouble in a hurry. Yea, also, when he that is a fool walks by the way, his wisdom fails him. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. So, our attitudes, our approach to life, our approach to people can be read very, very easily. And the fact that we're being a fool becomes pretty obvious pretty easily. So we need to guard our hearts and be sure they stay where they ought to be. If the spirit of the ruler rise up against you, leave not your place, for yielding pacifies great offenses. If whoever is in charge of whatever circumstance at work or wherever you may be in whatever context this means, uh, best keep your mouth shut, best not to fight, best not to rebel, uh, yielding pacifies great offenses. So you may have done something that you shouldn't have done, but defending and getting defensive and trying to uh, exonerate yourself doesn't do much good. But if you yield and you repent and you say you're sorry, uh, boy, that pacifies the, uh, the wrath pretty easily. A soft answer turns away wrath, is the way you put it in the Proverbs. There is an evil which I've seen under the sun, as <clears throat> an error which proceeds from the ruler. Folly is set in great dignity, and the rich sit in low place. I've seen servants upon horses, and princes walking as servants upon the earth. So what is, and what you see around you, isn't always fair. It isn't always right. You can have princes digging ditches, and you can have uh, people who are in uh, the role of king or prince or whatever, uh, 
acting like a fool. So you, you see people that deserve where they are and people who don't deserve where they are. He that digs a pit shall fall into it, and whoso breaks an hedge, a serpent shall bite him. When we meddle, uh, how did he put it in the Proverbs? Don't take a dog by the ears. Well, Lyndon Johnson tried that, and he got all kinds of ire as a result of it. Uh, Sometimes it's best just to leave things alone. Maybe you're digging a pit for someone else, and you'll be the one that falls in it. Whoso removes stones shall be hurt therewith, and he that cleaves wood shall be endangered thereby. If you're using an axe, uh, you better be careful. It would be real easy to chop your foot off. If the iron be blunt, and he do not wet the edge, he must put to more strength, but wisdom is profitable to direct. No, you can sharpen up your thinking, and you'll do better. Or you can be dim-witted and dull-witted, and uh, you might work hard at what you're trying to accomplish, but if the, if the tool is dull, you don't get much done. Surely the serpent will bite without enchantment, and the babbler is no better. There are snakes that don't have rattles on their tails, and they will strike immediately. There's a puff adder in Africa, which concerned me in some more ways more than others, other snakes when I was there, in that they're a big, fat, lazy, not long, but big around snake, and very deadly. <clears throat> and they often lie in a trail or a path. And they give no warning. If you step near them or on them, they just simply turn and bite you. Just wham, like that. And your life expectancy goes really, really low at that point because they're nasty customers. Uh, Some snakes will give a warning, others do not. And many of those in Africa and Asia don't give warning. They just bite. And some of them are even aggressive, like the green mamba, uh, or the black mamba is the worst. Uh, They will sometimes chase you down. There have been cases where people have been riding in the back of a pickup, and a mamba can stand up very high, and would bite people who were in the pickup because they resented the pickup driving by and the people in it. So they don't need much provocation. They'll bite without enchantment. And people are the same way with their tongue. They don't need to be primed necessarily. They'll just bite. And that's something we have to be very, very aware of. A babbler is no better. Uh, so someone who bites with their tongue uh, is compared here to a snake that is aggressive. The words of a wise man's mouth are gracious, but the lips of a fool will swallow up himself. Gracious there uh, is number 2580. It means favor or grace or charm. Kind words, good words, positive, uplifting words is what it's trying to say. A wise man is going to be saying positive things, working at encouraging and strengthening and helping. But a fool will swallow himself up. Uh, That's what the negative side is. Uh, It's foolish to be negative. 
We're here to encourage, to help each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And we need to be encouraging and strengthening one another instead of biting one another. So that's the difference between a wise man and a fool. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is mischievous madness. So, we need to be very careful with our tongues. A fool also is full of words. A man cannot tell what shall be and what shall be after him. Who can tell him? With, with many words, there is much sin. Quoting another place. Maybe they were quoting from right here in that particular passage. The labor of the foolish wearies every one of them because he knows not how to go to the city. You can be out working on the farm, I guess, and you're not really influencing people much. But some people don't know how to go to the city. They don't know how to act and react among people. They say the wrong things, act the wrong way. So we need to learn wisdom. Verse 16, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes eat in the morning. In other words, they're not there to be just, to be good rulers, they're just there to feed themselves. They're just there to eat. They're there to get up in the morning and say, what do I have to eat? What can I have? In other words, selfishness, basically. They're living selfishly, taking care of themselves from the time they get up in the morning until they go to bed at night. Blessed are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobles, and your princes eat in due season for strength and not for drunkenness. In other words, we eat to live. We don't live to eat. If you have people who are only concerned, for the most part, and being sure the body is surfeited and is full and gets what it wants, <laughs> or the mind, this can apply spiritually, certainly, as well as physically. What is our emphasis? Are we there to serve and to help? Are we there to get strength from food or just to enjoy and not for drunkenness? So, he's already said we should enjoy wine, but not drunkenness. And some people don't wait till noon. (laughs) They don't wait till five. Some people get up and start drinking in the morning because that's what they do. That's the way they think. They, they are only concerned about what they want. And, drugs and, and uh, drugs and alcohol can do that to you. By much slothfulness, the building decays, <clears throat> and through idleness of the hands, the house drops through. Why should I fix the roof? It isn't raining. Well, oh, I'll be reminded when the roof starts leaking that I ought to fix it. Well, this is your spiritual house as well as your physical house. The physical and the spiritual need care. <clears throat> it's been on my mind some for some months, and I try whenever I get a chance to fix things better around here, to make them look better. We had equipment sitting out, and the sun doesn't do it any good. 
And just having stuff sitting around doesn't look good. In fact, the county was after us over and over not to have outside storage. So I took it upon myself to put this shed up and a fence in front and a, even a place where we can put junk stuff till we can get rid of it so that it's hidden from view. And I think that we need to, uh, all of us, make it a point to take care of especially our own area to be sure that it is clean, that it looks nice, that things are painted, that things are uh, ship-shape. It's easy to let it go, not do anything. And as a community, we need to look around and see what could be made better and look better. We're God's people. And when somebody drives through here, it should look different than the area surrounding us. It really should. And that's why I wrote it in the lease like I did, that we wouldn't have junk around and, and cars that don't work and junk and stuff. But we need to clean it up, take care of it. And God is the author of goodness, of beauty. And even though he made a beautiful garden for Adam and Eve to live in, he told them to dress and keep it. Not let limbs lie around everywhere, not let it become junky and, and uh, so on, like a wind blows through a forest, knocks a bunch of trees down. You can't even walk through it because of the deadfalls. Well, it would be better if those were cleaned up and used for firewood or lumber or whatever, rather than just being left there in a real mess. So God expects us to take care of things. And the same is true of our spiritual life and what we have around us. A confused mess is the result of a confused mess of the mind, generally, in some way or another. I know if I let my desk get piled up with you know, papers and articles and books, you know, whatever. And then I'll sit down at my desk and I don't know what to do. So I have to throw away what doesn't need to be there. I have to organize what is left and I have to make lists so that I know what needs to be done. And then the confusion goes away because I have clear-cut goals and purposes and things to do, a to-do list. Now, you may be smart enough not to need one, but I do, because if I don't have it on my list, it may not get done. If it's on my list, it'll get done. Maybe next year, but it's going to get done if it's on the list. I've got a few things on my list that have been there for years now that haven't gotten done around here, because there's so much to do and so few to do it. But we need to make sure our house is in order both physically and spiritually. And you will do better spiritually if you do better physically. Now, I know that God wanted us to have a used mobile home village. I had that in a dream before this was ever built. And we didn't do this deliberately. It happened, and then I remembered the dream. But even used mobile homes need to be cared for and taken care of and made to look as good as they can. Yes, we're here temporarily. This is a temporary village, and God 
caused it to be conceived and done that way. But we have our part in taking care of what we do have, and then maybe God will give us more. If we take care of our spiritual life while we're still human, then God is going to give us eternal life. So everything should be decent and in order. God is not the author of confusion. We don't need to be compulsive, obsessive about it, but we need to be sure that things are taken care of. So that the house doesn't drop through. Verse 19, a feast is made for laughter, and wine makes merry, but money answers all. We can enjoy what we have around us, but from a purely human standpoint, money takes care of a lot of our needs, takes care of a lot of the problems. Uh, We get things we need or we want, and it solves a lot of problems. I mean, you can laugh and you can drink wine and still tomorrow you can't pay the mortgage or buy food or gas for the car or buy the car or whatever. So money does have its place. On the other hand, in the New Testament, we're told that it is a root of all evil because lust and envy and jealousy and desire for money can cause lots of problems. But money has its place. Verse 20, curse not the king, no not in your thought, and curse not the rich in your bedchamber. For a bird of the air shall carry the voice, and tell, and that which has wings shall tell the matter. I had that used on me when I was a kid. My aunt or my mother or my grandmother would know what I had been doing or thinking. And I'd say, well, how did you know? A little birdie told me. You've probably heard that as you were growing up. A little birdie told me. You know, what's going through your head, the attitudes that you might try to conceal, the things that you say to your best friend only, or whatever, become obvious. Even if you never utter a word, the way you act, the things you say, become obvious that your attitude is this way, cursing the king in your thoughts. Because the bird of the air, the look of your face, the body language, it's not that hard to read when somebody is in a negative or foul attitude, (coughs) whether they say a word or not. Well, the obvious answer to that is don't think it. Don't let your mind go there because it will defile you and cause you problems. So it's just better not to let yourself go there. I better hurry if I'm going to get through this. Verse chapter 11, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you shall find it after many days. Give a portion to seven and also to eight, for you know not what evil shall be upon the earth. Don't just keep your bread to yourself. But cast it out there. Help others. Do for others. Share what you have with others. You don't know what's coming. And it might be nice to have people that think well of you because you've been kind and generous and helpful and, and uh, help them out. And that bread may come floating back to you. Isaiah 58 fits very well there on how we are to give 
our bread to those who are in need. Verse 3, If the clouds be full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And if the tree fall toward the south or toward the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it shall be. It's just, you've got to face reality. If the tree falls there, that's where the tree's going to lay. It's not going to get moved unless somebody decides to cut it up for firewood or something. It's, it's going to be where it falls. I've felled a lot of trees in my life, professionally for a short while, and I found out very quickly that whichever way I made that cut, if I made an error, that tree was going to fall where the dynamics of the cut made it fall. And I couldn't change it once it started leaning a certain way and started falling. It was going there. So, sometimes, or I guess what he's saying here basically is things are going to happen and there's nothing you can do about it. That's just the way it's going to be. He that observes the wind shall not sow, and he that regards the clouds shall not reap. There's a proverb about that. Uh, You know, there's a lion in the streets. I can't go to work because the lion might get me. Uh, It's... The wind's going to blow, so there's no sense in planting today. Uh, I guess it's going to rain, so I, I guess I better not go out and do the harvest. You know, we can find all kinds of excuses for things. Some things you can change, some things you can't change. Wherever the tree falls, it's going to fall. But you have to go ahead and react according to what will accomplish something. You can't do anything about that tree, but you can do something about the job you have to do and not find excuses not to go do it. As you know not what is the way of the Spirit, nor how the bones do grow in the womb of her that is with child, even so you know not the works of God who makes all. It is a marvel that a child can be implanted and then grow in the womb. What a marvelous miracle. And some people want to stop that, truncate that growth, destroy that child in an abortion to murder it. But it is such an awesome thing that God has done for us to be able to reproduce. We ought to be in awe of it, not trying to stop it for whatever reason. God has done things that are beyond our comprehension, beyond our ability. Oh, yeah, now they can take sonograms and they can see whether the baby's male or female. They can tell whether it's deformed or not. There are things you can know about that baby before it's born, but you haven't figured out what makes it happen. You can't know those things. With all our scientific understanding, we can't understand how God creates life. Scientists are saying, we can create life, we can do it from dirt. All right, where'd you get the dirt? Where'd that come from? God is far greater than us, and we don't know. So, how is God going to take you and me and transform us into eternal Beings that will always do good and always do right and never be negative and never be hurtful or harmful or destructive throughout all eternity. 
That's way beyond our comprehension, especially when we're realistic with what we are and how we think. But he is capable of doing it. Verse 6, In the morning sow your seed, and in the evening withhold not your hand. So work, produce, sow your seed if you're a farmer, or whatever it is that your hands find to do. So work, and then in the evening, free time, when you're not working, don't withhold your hand. Serve, help, share, give to others. For you know not whether you shall prosper, or what whether shall prosper, either this or that, whether they both shall be alike good. You don't know when you plant a garden what the harvest is going to be like, do you? You have hopes, you have thoughts in mind of what will come from that garden, but you don't really know. So you do your best to make it come out right, and then you hope for rain or water or lack of weeds or blasted rabbits or whatever not to get in your way. Truly the light is sweet, and a pleasant thing it is for the eyes to behold the sun. It's a good thing when the sun comes up in the morning and we have a new day. We're above ground, and we can go out and do whatever needs to be done. But if a, but if a man live many years and rejoice in them all, yet let him remember the days of darkness, for they shall be many. All that comes is vanity." You can live, you can enjoy, but there will be hard times, there will be bad times, there will be dark days. Mama told me there'd be days like this. You know, we have expressions for it. And even with us, I said time and chance doesn't really bear upon you and me, but on the other hand... He says that the Christian life will be full of trials and tribulations and difficulties. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but God will see us through them all. So it doesn't matter whether we're converted or unconverted, we're still going to have bad days. Then some advice, verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. And let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth, and walk in the ways of your heart, and in the sight of your eyes. You can have goals and purposes and dreams, and you can set about to fulfill those. But know you that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. So as you plan your life and your hopes and your dreams, remember that there is a God. And he will bring everything into account before it's all said and done. There will be a judgment. So, a lot of people don't really plan and purpose and create good dreams. They just sort of live and react to what their body and their minds and their emotions want as they go through life. Uh, But if you don't plan it, and if it's not orderly and you're just going to go by the whims of the flesh, remember there is a judgment. So you can be young, but that doesn't mean you have to be stupid. It doesn't mean you have to be foolish. You can consider God even from childhood. Doesn't it say even a child is known by his works, whether they be good or evil? So, while I was young, is not an excuse. We should be taught 
the things of God when we're young, and hopefully we'll stick to them. If not, at least maybe we'll rebound to them. Therefore, remove sorrow from your heart and put away evil from your flesh, for childhood and youth are vanity. A lot of the things we do when we're young are just for the sake of ego and vanity and self-centeredness and fun or pleasure. And we're not considering the deeper things in life and considering God. We're just out there to enjoy whatever it is we've decided to enjoy. This really shouldn't be a chapter break with chapter 12. Remember now your Creator in the days of your youth. Don't forget God. I mean, you can plan and you can desire and set a course maybe for your life and then work at making it happen. But don't forget God in your planning, even in the days of your youth. While the evil days come not, nor the years draw near, when you shall say, I have no pleasure in them. This man was remembering his youth, and now he was an old man. And he says, I look back, and a lot of the things I did when I was young have not produced good fruit, but they've come back to haunt me. And I think we could all say that to one degree or another. While the sun or the light or the moon or the stars be not darkened, nor the clouds return after the rain. You know, you you do begin to get old, and the sunlight isn't as bright as it used to be. Your mind doesn't work as well, your body doesn't work as well, things don't happen as easily. It's hard to get around, it's hard to survive. Um, It's going to come. So... You don't need to feel immortal and eternal when you're young, but consider that someday you're going to get old too. You know, when we're young, we don't really consider it. I don't know how you got so old, I'm never going to get there. Well, you do. (laughs) You do. And believe me, it happens a lot faster than you think it will. Verse 3, In the day when the keepers of the house shall tremble, and the strong men shall bow themselves, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those that look out of the windows be darkened. Remember that song long, long, long ago? I think it came out when I was a kid even. It says, this old house is getting creaky, this old house is getting old. The windows let in the rain and the cold and so on. It went on and on, talking about a human being. And nothing works like it used to anymore. So it happens even to a young house that is built. It gets old. It goes downhill. Verse 4, And the doors shall be shut in the streets when the sound of the grinding is low, and he shall rise up at the voice of the bird, and all the daughters of music shall be brought low. Music doesn't mean what it used to mean when you get old. Uh, You know, music to some degree is for young people because they are doing this and doing that. But there comes a point where you don't want to party and dance. (laughs) You know, I, I... heard a sports reporter just recently that said St. Paddy's Day was coming. He says, you know you're getting old when you know the crowded bars are going to be there and they're going to be bustling and, and everybody's going to be having a party and you'd rather stay home and watch Netflix. And uh, there's a certain amount of truth to that. <laughs> you know, the body just gets old, the mind gets tired of certain things and there is a change that comes. That's what he's saying. And it happens to them all. 
Verse 5, Also when they shall be afraid of that which is high, and fear shall be in the way, and the almond tree shall flourish, and the grasshopper shall be a burden, and desire shall fail, because man goes to his long home, and the mourners go about the streets. So things will get less appealing in this life, and a lot of things just won't be worth the bother as we draw to the end of this life. Or ever the silver cord be loosed, or the golden bowl be broken, or the pitcher be broken at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern. Broken things just don't work well. Broken old bodies don't work well. Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit shall return to God who gave it. Now he's already said, and he understood, that the dead know nothing. So the Spirit that returns to God is unconscious. It is not alive and living in that sense. As Herbert Armstrong put it, and I think it was right, it's like a recording of you, your character, your life. And God preserves that. So there is a spirit in man that is different from the animals. But once you die, it is detached from, and it doesn't go in a conscious form to God, it goes unconsciously, and is kept there in the archives until the resurrection. And then it is combined with the resurrected body, and consciousness reoccurs. So the point he's making really is, though, dust goes back to dust. And there's no way to prevent that. And as a result, verse 8, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. This life is futile because no matter what you do or how high you rise or how rich you get, uh, one thing happens to them all. The worms crawl in and the worms crawl out and we go back to dust. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Now, he was jaded, he was tired, he was old, he was frustrated. He realized a lot of the things he had done in his life were wrong and didn't produce anything, and now he was about to die. And yet he said, "There's at least there's a saving grace here. Uh, at least I can pass along the knowledge that I've had and the understanding and the wisdom that God gave me. Yea, he gave good heed, and sought out, and set in order many proverbs. So Solomon had a certain amount of love and caring about him. Uh, he was tired, he was old, and yet he still wrote out or organized the proverbs. Maybe he had written some of those throughout his life, I don't know. But he saw fit to codify them and set them in order, for future generations, if they had enough sense to read them. Now, he's already said, you don't learn much from others. Uh, you, you learn hatred and love yourself. But at least he's making an effort to get it across to us, what is wise and what the future holds, and how to live a productive, happy, good life. That's what the Proverbs are about. How to handle the various circumstances in life properly, so that there is a good outcome. The preacher sought to find out acceptable words, and that which was written was upright, even words of truth. And the, the Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes and some of the Psalms that he may have written certainly are that, and God saw fit to preserve them for you and me. 
The words of the wise are his goads and his nails fastened by the masters of assemblies which are given from one shepherd. Goads, nails fashioned. Words need to be implanted in us and he uses goads or nails as an example. Wise words, good words, sometimes hurt as they go in. Just as you can hammer your thumb or stick a needle or a, with an automatic nail gun, you might even shoot yourself in the hand or the foot or the belly, wherever I've seen it, with all places. And it hurts. But it fastens something in place, doesn't it? And wise words, such as he's giving, uh, can hurt, and at the same time, they can help solidify and nail down and make permanent things in our lives that will turn out good. And further, by these, my son, be admonished. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is awareness of the flesh. You can be a scholar, and you can study, and you can study, and you can study, and you can write many, many books, and the libraries are full, and the halls of Congress are full of books. And they can be somewhat helpful, but they can also be a weariness of the flesh to read and read and read, and perhaps never really learn. So he says, let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. All that we've been through in this book about the vanity and the futility of human life as it is lived without a higher dynamic, without God. So he says, when I, when I summarize life, all that he experienced, all he had seen done, everything that is on this earth that man goes about, Let's hear the conclusion, the summation of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole man. Not just the duty of, which is in italics. That is the whole man. Fear God and keep His commandments. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. 34, Psalm thirty-four, nineteen, I think it is. So fearing God is where we can start to have wisdom and learning and what is truly important. Anything on this life ends in simple death. And anything beyond that, God has to take care of. He is the creator of life. He is the one who called us. He is the one whose salvation our, our salvation is in His hands. And He is working salvation in us, actively, trying to get us where we need to be. So fear Him. Don't fear man. Fear God. We're not here today because of man. We're here because of what we read in God's Word. That's why we're here. It's a commanded assembly to come before God and to hear His words expounded. It's not a choice for us. He told us to come, to be here. It's a commanded assembly, a holy convocation. Why? That we might learn to fear God. That we might learn, that we might 
remember his words and not forget them. So fearing God and keeping his commandments is the whole man. It makes you whole and entire. His commandments equal love. And that's the greatest thing. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. So it doesn't matter. God sees all. He knows all. He knows your most private thoughts. He knows your darker side. He knows your lighter side. He knows every side of you. He knows every thought that you allow to go through your mind and what you make your mind do. And He is the judge. I'm not your judge. You're not my judge. God is the judge of us all. So we need to fear God and keep His commandments because there is something beyond this life. There's something beyond dying and going back to the dust. And that's where we need to focus, to fear God and keep His commandments because He is going to make a judgment someday whether we live or whether we die eternally. So this life means a lot, doesn't it? It's not futile if we put God in the picture or He draws us into His picture and we accept it more truthfully put. He has called us into His way of life. And now He is making judgment day by day whether or not He will give us eternal life or extend our life, even after death. So while this life is futile, in and of itself, there is something beyond that is worth looking to. And I think Solomon understood that as the reason he wrote this. Because what difference does it make if there's a judgment, if you're dead, and that judgment means nothing to you? So he had to understand that there is a life beyond, a world tomorrow, a kingdom of God. He knew that. So he said, don't let your life just be this physical life, living by your whims and desires and wants. But consider God in all things, whether you're young or whether you're old, and that a judgment is coming, and that judgment will have to do with life eternal. So, this life is a training ground for life eternal. And that's what we need to be thinking about. So, the book of Ecclesiastes is not futile at all. It's just about life as man experiences it. And it's also about what comes later. So, I think it's a very, very good lesson to go through. And get our perspective and our focus right. But there is more than just this. And let's not live for today, let's live for tomorrow.